HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. We're going to do the crystal shrimp dumplings, the mapa tofu, and dry pot with the ribbon noodles, potatoes, and bok choy. What kind of pierogies are these? Can I get that? Um, four, please. When we think about New York, we think about the diverse cultures, histories, and people that make this city what it is. By sharing the taste of home with their new neighbors, generations of immigrants have contributed to New York's multicultural food landscape. Many of New York's neighborhoods remain rich enclaves with strong ties to food cultures from around the world. The Bronx has Arthur Avenue's Little Italy, while Queens Jackson Heights neighborhood is home to Little India, Little Columbia, and Little Tibet. In Brooklyn, enjoy pierogies from Greenpoint's Little Poland or chow down on kimchi in Manhattan's K-Town. But immigrants' contribution to the city's foodways are not limited to designated areas. Immigrants make all kinds of kitchens run across the five boroughs. They are deeply embedded in the fabric of our city's food. Today, we pay homage to the immigrants shaping how New Yorkers eat exploring history and personal stories, as well as taking a hard look at the access issues that affect some of our city's newest residents. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meet and Three on HRN. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meet, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. 
First, Vaidehi Kudyadi travels back in time to learn how a community of immigrants from the Arabic-speaking world left their mark. At the end of the 19th century, New York City became home to migrants from around the Arab world. Families and individuals came to the Big Apple in search of a new life and settled in Lower Manhattan and Brooklyn. While migrants from Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, and Iraq started their lives in America by importing goods and street peddling, they were also known for their food. A lot of, of, of New York journalists and uh, writers and uh, intrepid bohemians from other parts of the country that would come to New York and go and visit these ethnic enclaves uh, for the adventure of it to try new foods and and learn new languages and cultures. And so there's lots of accounts of journalists and travel writers going into the little Syria community in lower Manhattan and, you know, writing about the exotic foods and, and, and restaurants that they found there. That was Dr. Matthew Yeber-Stiflo, a professor and researcher of Arab and Muslim American studies at the University of Michigan. Dr. Stifler is also a scholar of Arab American history and food in New York City. The Arab migrant community enriched the cultural fabric of the island from the moment of their arrival, from importing rare foods like pistachios to opening restaurants specializing in Turkish coffee and pastries, the community introduced Americans to diverse tastes. But according to Dr. Stifler, they also had other motives. The early 1900s is a time when the general American public didn't see eating ethnic food as like an average everyday thing. So, you know, you didn't have people just wandering around trying different ethnic foods that often. (laughs) But it was one way that the community, the Arabic-speaking community in New York, was able to present a uh, positive face of who they were. Because at this time, it was very, you know, the United States was not a friendly place for immigrants in general. So they used these restaurants as a way for the public to come and sample their food and meet some of the community and maybe get a different perception. So food, you know, it's tasty, it's different, it gives you something to talk about. The idea of sharing a meal with somebody goes back centuries and centuries of uh, of a way to learn about another person. And so uh, these restaurants were very adept at bringing in the public through their advertising and the way they they decorated the restaurants. While survival and acceptance may have been driving forces for these migrants, there is no denying that they had an impact on the way New Yorkers eat, even today. In the early days, they were producing things like hummus, which is like very, like today, to find someone who's never had hummus is like really hard to do. Um, But even like as late as like the 1980s and 1990s, like it was still seen as like an exotic thing. So there are some foods that um, the community brought that have become, you know, very much staples of not just New York City cuisine, but of, of the broader United States. Even though some Arab American enclaves like Little Syria and Lower Manhattan don't exist anymore, we can still find traces of their food legacies all around New York and America. The next time I sit down at a restaurant for Middle Eastern food or pick up a falafel from a food cart, I will think about the long history that accompanies the food I am eating. The influx of immigrants into New York City has only increased since the early 20th century. Neighborhoods like Little Italy and Chinatown loom large in the New York City foodscape. But where do smaller immigrant communities go to find a taste of home? 
Bianca Garcia looks at how Jollibee spotlights Filipino values and brings a taste of nostalgia to a people raised on chicken joy. As a Filipino living in the United States, it's not always easy for me to find food that reminds me of my childhood. For this episode, I knew I wanted to cover Jollibee, a Filipino fast food joint famous for a bucket of fried chicken called Chicken Joy. Their jolly spaghetti, which is a sweet sauce loaded with sliced hot dogs, and a warm, flaky peach mango handheld pie for dessert. New York is supposed to be the place where you can find every kind of food to eat, right? That's how I found myself walking past the New York Times office along 8th Avenue, where across the busy street, I spotted the smiling mascot of Jollibee. Soon, I met up with a friend who was saving me a seat in a coffee shop in Midtown. I opened up my takeout bag for us to share and let the big red bucket of Chicken Joy sit proudly in the middle of the table. As we chowed down on the chicken, I kept making eye contact with passersby, which was weird. They kept on smiling at us, which is weirder. Eventually, a brave stranger sitting nearby us leaned over to say, I can't believe you guys like Jollibee. I grew up on that. Where did you get it? As I leaned away to talk to them about it, people on the street followed suit and waited to ask me where I got our takeout. They were so excited. Most of them, I could tell, were Filipinos, but some were just curious about the hype around our small table. I guess Jollibee is already capturing the minds and appetites of New Yorkers. Clearly, Jollibee is held pretty close to heart by many Pinoys, even overseas. I spoke to Diane Yoro, the marketing director of Jollibee North America, to talk about the significance of the Jollibee brand to Filipinos here in the U.S. She started off by sharing her own emotional connection to the food. So I grew up in the Philippines, um, in Las Piñas City. It's a it's a city in the southern part of Metro Manila. I definitely grew up on the brand. Um, it's a huge part of I think every every child in the Philippines. It's every child's dream to have a party in in Jollibee. Just, you know, every Sunday, it's a tradition for our family after church to go to a Jollibee and eat out and enjoy the weekend. Jollibee was founded in the Philippines in 1978 by one industrious Tan Kak Tiong, a Chinese immigrant to the Philippines. The mascot, a chubby-cheeked, tuxedo-wearing bumblebee, was designed to mirror Filipinos. Jollibee smiles because Filipinos are reputed to be the happiest people in the world. And it is a bee because Filipinos are also hardworking. The honey, the product of their labor, is sweet and representative of joy. Jollibee is the fastest growing Asian food corporation in the world, and they aim to share a taste of the Philippines with people all over the U.S. and beyond. By 2025, they hope to have over 300 stores in North America. Right now, they sit at 70. This pales in comparison to the 1,185 stores that they have in the Philippines. In New York City, there's one on 8th Avenue and one on Broadway. This month, they opened up a huge flagship store right in the middle of Times Square. I feel very proud when our customers tell me they're very thankful that we have expanded here in the U.S. and that they're able to access a taste of home. Many of them haven't had a chance to come back in many years, even in decades. And so they connect with their roots through food um, and through Jollibee. 
So when we entered the U.S. market back in 1998, our strategy was to cater to Filipino Americans, so to immigrants um, who are looking for a taste of home, who are very nostalgic for our food. Over the years, though, we've seen a lot of interest among the general market, the general population, and and so this really, this really tells us that great food knows no race or boundaries. With a smaller Pinoy community in New York, it took until 2009 to open up the first store in Queens. It goes to show how there's a growing demand for the food outside of the Filipino community in New York. When you crave Asian flavors, the lightness of fish sauce, the tang of garlic, the bite of vinegar, how often do you eat Filipino food rather than, say, Chinese or Thai food? My guess is rarely. Jollibee might be the breakthrough food chain that brings Filipino food and culture into the greater American palate. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a brief break. Eight One Eight Tequila creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. Eight One Eight is created from fully matured blue agave from the Los Altos and Valles regions of tequila. It is then slow cooked for over thirty hours, extracted using traditional Tejona wheels, distilled twice in copper pot stills, and aged in American and French oak barrels. Their tequilas have received over 25 blind tasting awards. They strive for excellence in every sip. 818's Blanco is sweet and smooth, with undertones of tropical and citrus fruits. Their Reposado is soft and balanced, with notes of caramel and vanilla. And their Añejo is elegant and velvety, with crisp herbal notes and a warm vanilla finish. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their tequila and find it near you. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Welcome back to Meat and 3. In 1960, there were just over 8,000 Mexican immigrants in the United States. According to a 2020 census, that number has jumped to over 300,000, including second-generation Mexicans. For over the past 40 years, This influx of Mexican immigration has been responsible for the pervasiveness of the Mexican food that we've all come to know and love across the nation. Alba Tamara Rodriguez does some on-the-ground reporting from the Bronx. Mobile food vending in Mexico, as well as New York City, is over 100 years old. However, the first taco truck wasn't started until 1974 by Raul Martinez in Los Angeles. And as Mexican migration to the United States became more widespread, so did the trucks. I wanted to hear from some folks in my native borough of the Bronx about why they started them. First, I met with Giovanni Salazar. I spoke with him outside of his taco truck on Broadway near 238 Street. Giovanni says he came to the U.S. for a better future, for my family, and because in Mexico there are hardly any jobs. Where I'm from, the state of Guerrero, there's not a lot of work. 
Giovanni started with a food cart on 231st Street and Broadway, and after experiencing a year's success, he decided to venture into the food truck business, serving a cuisine similar to the original cart. What do you sell here? Uh, we sell tacos, quesadillas, semitas, tortas, pretty much Mexican food. Giovanni works the food cart 50 hours a week, and as his day comes to an end around 6.30 p.m., the taco truck is already pulling into its spot. The truck is operated by Giovanni's brother-in-law and other family members, but primarily his 17-year-old daughter, Citlali Astudillo. She is second-generation Mexican born in Queens. She calls herself the cashier, but she is also the face of the business. He started this because um, he used to work at a restaurant. He still loves the restaurant that he used to work in and appreciate the experience he got from it. But he wanted to like start building up his own ideas because the restaurant wasn't really acknowledging it or at least appreciating his ideas. So he's like, okay, I'll start my own business. So that's how we, that's how he and my godfather started to like do the food truck. So he was like, oh, like, Sikali, can you help me out? And I was like, I'll help you out for sure. So this is how it all started. I wasn't into like the idea of opening it up because it was kind of like a lot of work for me, but my dad seemed to really enjoy it, and that was his passion. So that's how we pretty much started up with just like building this. And what about your passion? What are you passionate about? Well, I'm more passionate about like um, managing like a business, and I'm also very passionate about like fashion, but like since I want to help out my dad first, so I, I like, I learn a bit from him with like the business-wise and then like fashion outside of the food truck. Citlali is a little above five feet tall with a sweet demeanor and a fierce sense of fashion. Her hair matches the aqua-colored truck and she wears a pixie cut and marked up wide leg jeans. This is like a way to say thank you for like raising me with my mom. So I pretty much feel like I gotta help him out. Like from love, but also like I feel, it, it also helped me build like some responsibility and independence with myself. So I thought, like, it's important to, like, do this with my dad. Citlali is an example of children torn between their familial responsibilities and their own passions, something that is significantly felt in the immigrant community. Yet, it is because of people like Citlali and her father that Mexican restaurants and businesses have been on the rise over the last 30 years. People from California are like, New York has no good Mexican food. I'm like... That's not true. That's very ignorant. <laughs> it has great Mexican food. That's Dr. Melissa Castillo Planas, CUNY professor and author of Mexican State of Mind, New York City and the New Borderlands of Culture. She talks about a few of the factors that encourage Mexican migration to New York City. But there's like a small town that like a couple people came from there and settled in New York and then you know, they just found um, New York to be like a place that was like less saturated in terms of like um, work for Mexicans and then also more uh, welcoming in terms of like the, the immigration laws and the like, you know, not so much ICE presence. ICE stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And that continues today, right? So like New York, for example, like the, you know, the NYPD is at least not supposed to co cooperate with ICE, right? So there's like a, there's all these things that make, that has have long made New York City, um, you know, more welcoming to immigrants. And Ramiro Castellan is one of those immigrants. 
I met up with him next on 138th Street near Brook Avenue, where he has operated a taco truck for the past 10 years. He started it after a prior business of his fell through. Well, out of necessity, this was the only thing that made it easy for me to work, says Ramiro. This country is the one that helped me come out ahead, and here we are, he says. A native of Puebla, Mexico, Ramiro has lived in the Bronx for over 30 years. He opens his truck at 11 a.m. and works until 7 p.m., five days a week. I love Mexican food, especially tacos al pastor. A mountain of pork is placed on a rotating spit and sandwiched between pieces of pineapple where it is fire-roasted. More recently, I've become a fan of pollo mancha mantel, otherwise known as tablecloth stainer chicken. It's called that due to its deep crimson color. And much like Dr. Castillo Planas, I too have met people who say there is no good Mexican food in New York City. I say to them, you're just not looking in the right place. Immigrants contribute so much to New York's food culture, but it's also no secret that they keep the food system running. During the pandemic, immigrants continued working in kitchens and delivering food as essential workers. But when it comes to supporting this community, and undocumented immigrants in particular, who were hit especially hard by COVID, there have been alarmingly few resources made available by the federal and state governments. Sarah Mathis investigates one organization's grassroots efforts to address the issue of food insecurity in the Latinx immigrant community in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Mixteca's Mercadito Solidario, or Solidarity Market, is about more than just providing food. It's not giving out the canned and boxed shelf-stable items that food pantries so frequently rely upon. Even when I visited during New York City's heat wave in July, their produce was beautiful. Under a shady tent, volunteers stood ready to give out Latin American kitchen staples to a long line of people. Some of them residents of the local shelter, other just people who had heard about the Marquidito through social media, local news, or word of mouth. Tomatillos, jalapenos, onions, tomatoes, eggs, cilantro, dragon fruit, bananas, watermelons, and mangoes. A little odd by the looks of these fruits and veggies, I asked Lorena Corusias, the executive director of Mixteca, where she was sourcing all this fresh produce. Some of them coming from a farmer market upstate New York, and others we, we purchase them in New Jersey. We purchase around to get the fresh, the most fresh items that we can get. I could tell that the freshness and deliciousness of the produce was a source of pride for Lorena, and the mangoes. She reiterated to me a couple times. Those mangoes are the best mangoes you can get in New York City. <laughs> and uh, we do that because it's really important for us to make a statement that this is a food justice and all, all, all families or communities deserve good quality of food and not just something, something that somebody else doesn't want. The Mercadito Solidario is filling a need for food, yes, but it's going about it in a way that's dignifying. Mixteco was founded in 2000 by Dr. Gabriel Rincon, a Mexican immigrant himself, to address the lack of Spanish language information about HIV and AIDS. 
Since then, Mixteca has broadened its mission, tackling a variety of barriers to the advancement of Latinx immigrants by providing education, physical and mental health services, and legal support. The Mercadito Saladerio was born of the pandemic when they realized that the community was struggling to get food on the table. Undocumented immigrants cannot apply for unemployment. They are also not eligible for SNAP benefits. Even the Excluded Workers Fund, a $2 billion expenditure by New York State to try to cover undocumented essential workers, was not enough. We just realized our community is excluded from the Excluded Workers Fund because they need an ID, they need a proof of work, they need employment, they need a lot of things that they don't have because we know these communities coming here to make their living and they have to do whatever they can do. And I always say they really love our work, they love our food, but they don't want us here, and that's the reality. There are no services for our community, and when we find few of them, it's like there is some really difficult application, and then the community cannot get those services. And for those that could provide the documentation to apply to the Excluded Workers Fund, 128,000, or about a third of applications, were approved. The New York Immigration Coalition estimates that 173,000 eligible workers did not receive any assistance before the funds dried up in a matter of months. Mixteca was also forced to forge its own way. We applied for funding for food and we didn't get it. So uh, all you see here is with no support from the government. Instead, the fresh fruits and veggies are paid for by Mixteca's ongoing food justice fundraising campaign. And you could help. Our webpage is mixtecap.org, and they can support our initiatives by donating food, donating their time, connecting the resources, because there may be lawyers, maybe doctors, maybe social workers. Your time, connections, and capital could go a long way in ameliorating the cruel irony that so many undocumented immigrants in the food industry experience putting food on New York City's tables while fighting to stock their own cupboards. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Bianca Garcia, Alba Tamara Rodriguez, Sarah Mathis, and Vaidehi Kudyadi. Meet and 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.